I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. In the United States, when people have a life-threatening emergency, they can make a call and get immediate help from the authorities. On the other hand, people can make prank emergency calls and trigger an emergency response even when there really isn't one. This costs law enforcement billions of dollars. And because of these prank calls, some people that were in a real emergency did not get their resources on time and died. Rita Singh, research faculty at the School of Computer Science at Carnegie Mellon, works on profiling humans from their voice. This work is part of voice forensics driven by artificial intelligence. Rita explains the information that is contained in a person's voice and how the physical environment can be derived. Her work resulted in successfully identifying a person that was making frequent prank emergency calls. To learn more about the topics of the show, sign up for the monthly newsletter by going to thewomenintechshow.com. Thank you for listening. Rita Singh, research faculty at the School of Computer Science at Carnegie Mellon University is joining us today. Rita, welcome to the Women in Tech show. Thank you for having me. So hoax calls annually cost law enforcement and security agencies over a billion dollars. You work on technologies to profile hoax callers to help authorities have a more informed response mm -hmm. to first understand what this problem is, I want to start with the hoax calls themselves. For example, what are these calls trying to accomplish? So hoax calls as we, in the context of the United States Coast Guard, for example, these are mayday calls. Mayday calls are distress emergency calls that are transmitted over the VHF-16 radio channel. That is, by international convention, that channel is designated for life-threatening emergencies. So when someone is, someone's life is in danger, their boat is sinking or whatever, and they make a mayday call, The Coast Guard responds by launching what are called SAR missions. A SAR mission is a search and rescue mission. They have to fire up helicopters and boats, and they send specialized, um, specially trained personnel out to sea and often have to search hundreds of square miles of sea to find the ocean surface, to find the vessel in distress. And so it's a pretty big deal. And in real emergencies, they do this really fast. These are the SAR missions are deployed fast and, and they often save the people in danger. But then there's a bunch of jokers out there who take advantage of this. So anyone can acquire a radio nowadays and make a mayday call. And what they do is just make these false mayday calls and sit back and watch the Coast Guard scramble around, send helicopters and boats and whatever. Somehow it gives them a high or a kick or whatever. But what happens is that if they make these hoax calls, if they make a mayday call in the middle of a storm, for example, it gets to be very dangerous for the people who go out there searching for the person who's in distress. And more than that, all of this draws away resources from real emergencies. 
So if there's a real emergency that happens while these people are out to sea with all their resources and people, they cannot attend to that. And people have died as a result. So making hoax calls is actually a federal crime and it's punishable by hefty fines and lots of years. And you could go to jail for a long time. But these are a rampant problem. The hoax callers, these are very, very short calls. They just go, you know, Mayday or Mayday help me or Mayday my boat is sinking. There isn't enough time to do any kind of triangulation or any kind of geolocation. So it's often very difficult to pinpoint the location of these people from these short calls. So they get away scot-free after creating all this ruckus and making the Coast Guard spend time and money searching for these calls. And the Coast Guard is not the only agency that gets hoax calls. July 4th happens to be the the field day for hoax callers. They will call in with bomb threats um, in malls and in public spaces, things like that. They're just people out there who are nasty and they like doing these things. And even if they know... They can go to jail. It's a real crime. It's a real crime, but they think they can't be found. You know, it's just their voice, and their voice is recorded, of course, but they don't think that they can be found using just their voice. I don't think they even think about that. And like you said, they don't think they can be found. They don't think they can be found, but there's something very interesting that I've noticed. So (laughs) as a race, we humans are really devious. Okay, so instinctively, they know that they are doing something wrong. Okay, and so and they don't know that there's technology out there that can be used to uh, find them. But still, instinctively, they try to not sound like themselves because they know they're doing Mm -hmm. something wrong. And we all I think in such situations, we are all going to do the same thing. If you want to pick up the phone and call up someone and maybe harass them and threaten them or something, likely is not, you're not going to use your own voice. You're going to try to disguise it. So most of the hoax calls are made in kind of disguised voices. Or even we, we can also do that with real calls. Like if I want to report somebody that did something bad to me, I maybe not necessarily want to. Right. And if you're just trying to get that person in trouble, this is called swatting, by the way. An extreme case of it is called swatting, where people just, you know, you don't like someone and you just call in these agencies and tell them, oh, this person has taken someone hostage in their basement or is brewing drugs in their basement or whatever it is. Entire SWAT teams are sent out in response. Yeah. And this person is totally unsuspecting and makes a wrong move, gets shot. People have died as a result of this. And in that situation, you would likely not use your own voice because Mm -hmm. you wouldn't want to be caught, right? And you might be trying to mask your where you're calling from, the your telephone number or whatever. You would do all those things. So we mentioned these calls tend to be short. They just say mayday. People hide their identity. Let's talk about what we can derive or extract from these short hoax calls. In your work, what types of variables or parameters from the caller have you been able to derive? Okay, so let me tell you what I work on. So the work itself, I work on what I call profiling humans from their voice. And this is an area that falls under voice forensics, but it's driven by artificial intelligence. Okay, so I'm starting from this because it'll be much easier to understand what kind of information and how I get to it. Oh, okay. I was thinking more about the 
opposite way, but we can start that way. Okay. So profiling humans from their voice is all about uh, deriving descriptors of the person's physical persona and the environment in which they are speaking from. So voice carries a lot of information. It carries more information than we think, more information than we realize. So it has signatures about a person's self and surroundings. It has signatures of your physical parameters like height, weight, body shape, skeletal structure, facial structure. It has uh, physiological information like your age or if you've been taking medications, the presence or absence of medications in your body. Um, it has signatures of your behavioral parameters. There's been a lot of literature on that. It can tell a lot about your dominance characteristics, about your leadership abilities and things like that. It has signatures about medical parameters, um, what kind of diseases you have, presence or absence of uh, any particular diseases. It can tell about the state of your physical health, the state of your mental health and effects of trauma, effects of medical procedures, abnormalities, disabilities, intoxication, substance abuse. It can tell a lot about your demographic background, race, your, your geographical origins, your level of education, your social status, even your income. As there, there are so many, many studies out there about all this. Also, it can tell a lot about the location of the speaker at the time of speaking. So if you're in a room, for example, how big is the room? What is the ceiling made of? What are the walls made of? What's on the floor? Um, how big are the windows? And things like that. None of this is perfect. The science, it's infancy, but there is no doubt at all that the signatures of all these parameters about the person are there in the voice. There have been so many studies about it. There are more than 30 different scientific fields that have been studying human voice. Face it, humans have been curious about the human voice for centuries now, right? So there are more than 30 scientific fields that study human voice. There are more than 400 journals that report results on studies on human voice and so on and so forth. And what we do is we kind of take information from all of this and connect the dots. And we are developing the science of profiling. From that point on, we are using artificial intelligence to do that. It's quite an exciting field and very, very new. What are the methods? AI is a very broad field. What sort of areas of AI are suitable to analyze these type of things? Okay, so that too is very interesting. So think about it. As humans, we make judgments about other people from their voices all the time. How many times have you heard a friend speak over the phone, just heard their voice and not seen them, and said, hey, you sound depressed, you sound really happy, you sound worried, you sound exhausted, you sound sick, you're drunk, you know? Yeah. We make so many, many judgments from voice, and there have been lots of studies about it. It's all very well documented from way back from 2nd century AD, in fact. So what we do is we computationalize the judgments that we humans make. We're trying to make machines come up with these kinds of judgments, except we want to make machines do this better than people. 
our hearing capabilities are not so good and and we can't home in on all the information there is in the voice just based on our hearing but that doesn't mean that machines can't do it so we try to make machines do it and we also expect machines to be able to make judgments that are beyond our own human capabilities so they can have super intelligent hearing so to speak and we are trying to make that happen using ai techniques and then when i talk about when uh, you're right ai is a very broad term in a nutshell what we do is what i call micro articulometry mm-hmm. right so that's all about measuring the micro properties of articulation and articulation as a human speech production process much of the information we are kind of talking about now all of the different parameters signatures of the different parameters that are read out a while ago all that information is embedded at very very fine levels in the voice signal and we are talking about 120th to 140th of a second duration so microarticulometry works in first it works in very high noise environments basically we are able to um what we do is we fragment the speech signal into very tiny parts that are highly consistent with respect to many many properties and then we look for profile signatures in them and we make machines learn to predict the profile parameters using those and none of this is doable manually we can't even discover those signatures by manual inspection remember these are micro signatures right and not only that they are in high dimensional spaces that mathematical spaces that we cannot uh, as humans visualize or interpret mm-hmm. so we need ai to even discover those in the first place and then we need ai to measure those to model those for prediction and all of that yes so even if you take one of these small parts that the machine identify and you listen to that piece is what you're saying no it's not you wouldn't even... perceive it it's so yeah. small you wouldn't hear it you wouldn't even know you're hearing it right yeah and so we make predictions and decisions from all of these different fragments of every speech signal that we get and then we combine those decisions we fuse like these are all like uh, think of these fragments as experts each of which is giving us a decision about a profile parameter or one or more profile parameters and then we take all of those decisions and apply uh, ai again to do information fusion and come up with a final decision so as an ensemble it is a very powerful process and do you use a training corpus for this for example you can find a recording i don't know of Brad Pitt or somebody and you know what they look like where they're speaking yes so for the most part we use found data in the process of collecting our own data and acquiring them from uh, uh, agencies such as healthcare agencies and and uh, law enforcement agencies but so far we've been largely reliant on found data and we studied the data of you know people celebrities people like the queen of england to find the effects of age i studied the voice of hitler and just by accident found very clear indications of parkinsons in the signatures that i saw in his voice and and so on and so forth we just you know get data from anywhere and everywhere uh if it's publicly available and usable we use the data and the good thing about the reason why this is happening now 
is sim- merely mm-hmm. because we have so much data at our disposal. There are, you know, billions of videos on YouTube. I can listen to them. And there are people talking about everything and anything out there. Intoxicated people, people under the influence of different drugs who are struggling with their drug problem and they go out and put out their videos uh, talking about their condition while they are under the influence. There are TV shows out there that use lie detectors, you know, the Jerry Springer, for example, where the guy calls in all these uh, people with personal problems who are lying to Mm -hmm. each other. And then he asks them questions in the beginning of the show. And he has gone and used a lie detector on some interviews he has conducted with those people earlier. And then he comes up with the results of the lie lie detector and invariably these people are found lying at the beginning of the show and then the people who are affected in the show kind of start fighting with them on stage and it's very sensational and okay so people ask me where do you get this you know lie and stress data from that's those are the kind of shows I get them from I mean I could go on and on but stuff for voice disguise I get data from these uh people who imitate Trump and all these political figures. That's something that I wanted to ask you about because we're seeing now software that anyone can use and they make you sound like somebody else. Yeah. Like, are are there still those micro signals in the audio that can give away, oh, this is an impersonator? Yeah, so there are two ways in which you can do this. Uh, And for one way, there's really no remedy. You can really fool the machine. And that way is by simply taking a recording of the person's voice, the person you're trying to impersonate, or the person who you're trying to make them appear as if they're saying what they've never said. You could take their voices and splice out the words and sounds in the yeah. voices and, and recreate something else, you know, some content that was never spoken by uh, that individual at all. And there is, you could still, the machine could still uh, find that it's a spliced signal, but it cannot tell that it's not the same person. Okay, mm-hmm. Because it is the same person. It is the same person. It is a recording from that person's vocal speech production apparatus, right? Uh, but there's this other way where you try to synthesize a person's voice. There's There's been a lot of work on voice transformation, voice synthesis, and they're very good techniques to do that. And often these synthesized voices come out sounding very, very natural. But then, as I said, our hearing capabilities are not very good. It's very easy to fool a human. But the machine, the, once you start looking at the microsignatures, there are way too many consistencies in synthesized voices of any kind that then is natural, right? So they're very easily caught in that sense. It's not, and and I would say that it is near impossible to reproduce all the complex nuances of the human voice at this time from where I sit I don't see how that's going to be possible okay and another area of this that we have is in theater in the arts where people impersonate other people they imitate voices yes actually they have taken advantage of the fact that your voice tells so much about you it actually defines you if you go to wikipedia and look up peter sellers he was a very good character actor right he acted in pink panther and and many other tv and movie shows and he was so good at it he was one of the world's best he was asked 
about how he was able to portray people so very well. And his answer was that the first thing he did was to try to create the voice of the person he wanted to portray. And through the voice, he could then create the person. Mm -hmm. So the people in dramatic arts have known this for a long time. Every character, even the, the animated characters, have a characteristic voice, right? If you imagine the voice of Mickey Mouse, it were somebody else's voice, maybe, you know, name a character, yeah. Jim Carrey's, maybe Jim Carrey's voice. It wouldn't fit. It's not in yeah. character. So, yeah, I mean, your whole personality comes through mm -hmm. from your voice. But if, for example, we have an actor that's imitating, I don't know, Obama, and you have that recording... Can yeah. you say, oh, this is an impersonator, the machine can detect? Yes, yes. Okay. At this point, yes. We've been studying these uh, impersonators and their, how they do the impersonation. We've been trying to find out. So basically, the voice production is such a complex process that every single voice is unique in many, many, many respects, in its fine detail and so mm -hmm. on. It's impossible for one person to reproduce exactly all the nuances of someone else's voice. There are things about your voice that you can change and there are things that are not under your voluntary control. You simply cannot change those. For example, you can't change your skeletal structure, right? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, and your skeletal structure determines your, the size of your vocal cavities and the size of your vocal cavities determine the quality of, of the voice that you produce, the resonances that happen in your vocal tract. Mm -hmm. You can't change that. You can change that to some extent, but not not at the deepest levels. So we're basically an instrument, for example, the violin and the cello. They're a family, but they have different size, yes. so they sound different. They sound different. Even though some notes are the same, it will sound different. Right. Every single voice, even voices of identical twins, every single voice is different. Let's talk a little bit about the AI that you use, for example... We have neural networks or things like SVMs. What sort of algorithms have been good for this? For this, okay. Yeah, for analyzing this micro-articulometry parameter. So one aspect of it has to do with speech recognition. We have a very strong group that has been inventing speech recognition and making great advances in speech recognition uh, over the past three decades here. And we use much of that technology to do the fragmentation that I was speaking of. We need very uh, acoustically and uh, articulometrically consistent fragments to study. So all the speech recognition technology and speech recognition and high noise technology that we have here comes into play there. And then the AI comes into play. What happens is that the signatures of these various hundreds of parameters uh, that I'm talking about are at such fine levels in the speech signal that humans cannot discover them by manual scrutiny of spectrograms or by trying to interpret data as, as they see them on their computers. The discovery of these microsignatures itself has to be done by AI. And how do you do that? How do you make machines discover something that you cannot tell the machine about, that you yourself cannot discover? And there's a way to do this. For example, I don't know how to measure the property of nasality, all right? 
everyone's speech has some level of nasality. There are some sounds like mm and mm that are completely nasal and others are not. So now how do I measure this? If I look at the, or breathiness, if I look at the speech signal and the spectrogram, there's no way I can say, hey, this is the property of nasality and here's what I can do to put a number to it, right? So what I do is I know which sounds are nasal sounds and which are not nasal sounds. So then I would train a, a neural network to discern accurately between, discriminate between the nasal and non-nasal sounds, right? And once the neural network has learned to do that discrimination well, I go back and dissect the neural network and figure out what it is that it has learned. Right, And what emerges from that process of dissection is a new microfeature that can put a number to nasality. Although, even at that point, I don't know how to measure nasality. Right, I can use it to grade nasality of different voices. I've explained it in a very crude fashion. But basically, we make machines do the task first from known data, using known data. And then we go back and dissect them and we try to improve our feature representations based on what we learn from that dissection process. And then we train further more networks to do the task even better using those features. And then we re-dissect them. And so it's an iterative process of discovery that we use. Mm -hmm. And like you said at the beginning, you have known examples of Nasality sounds is what you said? Yeah, nasality is just an example that I gave, yes. So if I have known examples of uh, voices and the heights of people, for example, I would do this. I wouldn't look at all the, you know, if I have, I have 10,000 different samples of voices and the heights of people who spoke in each of those 10,000 samples, I cannot hope to study all the signals manually and discover the patterns that correspond to height specifically, right? Yeah. I have to do something smart, use AI in some way to actually home in on the patterns without having to actually manually try to discover them. And those are the mechanisms that we put together for discovery. And that is the portion for the voice itself of the color. And like we mentioned earlier, there's also this environment where there are different types of sounds yeah that's a whole different story and very interesting in itself so the environment okay so everything around you reflects and absorbs sound mm -hmm. right if you're in an enclosure you have walls around you that are made of certain materials you have a carpet on the floor your ceiling is made of certain material your there's glass on the of a certain type on the window behind you or, or beside you or whatever when you speak, your voice reaches the microphone that you're using to record your voice directly. And then it also, reflections of that voice from all of these materials reach it indirectly. And then reflections of these reflections reach it and so on and so forth. So there's a pattern to the energy of the signal that reaches a microphone over time. And all of each of these reflections cause a fall in the energy. Each of these materials has a reflection coefficient, has an absorption coefficient. And all of this is well studied in the fields of, um, you know, architectural acoustics, material science, physics, you name it, right? We have all of physics. So we use all of that information. We study the pattern in each frequency, the, the patterns of how this phenomenon, which is called reverberation, um, how it affects the, the patterns of uh, attenuation in these frequencies. And then from that, we are able to backtrack to the material around you. 
These are the environment factors present in the voice. Yeah, and there are things in the environment that make sounds. Yeah, like the traffic or the birds. Exactly, exactly. One thing that I saw that was interesting is the ENF, electric network. Network frequency, yes. <laughs> can you mention something about that? Because I saw that it can be unique. Um, or something about the power lines that they emit something unique that if you hear it, you can know in which region you are. Yeah, so you get a signal of, you know, I have to look up the data on this. I've forgotten. So I think you get... Uh, 60, 60 hertz cycles over your grid in your home as your electric supply and 110 volts. But it's not always 60 hertz and 110 volts or 50 hertz and, or, uh, and 110 volts or whatever it is in your area. There's always a minor fluctuation around it. And there are stations out there that record these electric frequency fluctuations over time at every instant of time, they're continuously recording this. And these grid frequencies, as I call them, are different in different regions. When you plug in a device in your wall outlet and you use that to, let's say, power an audio capture device, like you're doing probably at your end right now, these fluctuations kind of seep into the audio recording. These are called electric network frequency fluctuations. They seep into mm -hmm. your audio recording. And then all I have to do is to take this audio recording and match up with the recordings of these stations that record your grid frequency signatures. And I would be able to tell exactly where, um, or at least a rough area uh, uh, of where mm -hmm. you made the recording and exactly what time you made the recording at, because that matches up exactly. That's pretty powerful. It's pretty powerful, yes. So now I want to talk, before we finish, about the implication of this. For example, at the beginning, we talked about all the different things that you can find in the voice, like if you're taking medications, if you have a disease or trauma. So what do you think of this technology? For example, it can be misused. Somebody can analyze the recordings from my podcast and derive if I'm sick or not or things like that. That is very, very possible. And that actually poses a very grave privacy concern for people. You use devices like Alexa and Amazon Alexa and Siri and what have you all the time. And what people don't realize is their voice is actually sent out there in the cloud to a server that does the processing and returns the answers that you want, that you're asking for. That voice is around there. There is no guarantee that it's gone forever. It's sitting there. Yeah. Your voice is like your DNA or your fingerprint. Uh, it's like giving away your fingerprint. It's out there carrying all information about you at the current time. And one day that information will be derivable in its entirety if our research is successful, that is. Uh, but the implications yeah. are that, you know, you hear about voice biometric uh, systems, voice mm -hmm. password systems. Well, your voice is out there. Anyone can get hold of it and use it for breaking through a voice password system in the future that you may want to use. So, yes, all these concerns do arise. They're there. <laughs> I guess there's some... 
work being done here, but you would say there there still needs to be more work in, in establishing how to handle this? There's this whole ethics side to AI, and this is a lot of AI that we are talking about here. Although this is AI-driven voice forensics, with emphasis on the word forensics, it's still AI-derived information. And Every consideration that you hear about that relates to AI ethics applies here, mm-hmm. right? We're talking about a human biometric. We're talking about the person's privacy, their entire being. And we have to worry about what information we allow to be made public and what information we keep confidential. And not only do researchers like us have to think about it, people who actually allow their voice to be recorded, have to also think about it. Unfortunately, many of them are not aware of the future problems posed by the technologies that are being developed around voice. Mm-hmm. So what can I say? Yes, I agree. It's a, it's a huge concern. Yeah. And the more positive side, for example, I would love to have a system that analyzes my voice. And like you said, you've analyzed voices of leaders and things like that so that it can tell me, oh, you need to improve more on this and that. Yeah. It can tell you things about you that you don't know yourself. Maybe one day, right? And such information will make machines understand you better so your robot can be a better friend than any other human friend that you have ever. That's cool. Yeah. It it could lead to very good things as well in the future. Yes. So I want to end with a quick recap of your work with the hoax call because this happened to you the authorities came with this hoax call and told you they didn't say we're desperate, but it was kind of like, we need some insight into this. Oh, this happened very, very, very suddenly. And it's a very interesting story. Yeah. So I'd been working in speech recognition, speech and audio processing for 20 years. I'd never thought of working on this problem. I never even thought of this as a problem, right? It was not on my radar. Um, So in 2014, this hoax caller, one repeat hoax caller kept making multiple calls to the Coast Guard. And they sent these recordings to a DHS, Department of Homeland Security Center of Excellence at Rutgers University. University. That center is called CICADA. That stands for um, Command, Control, and Interoperability Center for Advanced Data Analytics, I think. It's a long name. It was headed by Fred Roberts from Rutgers University and Edward Hovey from Carnegie Mellon. And so Ed Hovey uh, got these recordings uh, to me. I mean, he forwarded the recordings from Cicada to me, and the recordings came with a request. I mean, this is all we have as evidence for the hoax caller. Tell us what you can from, give us whatever information you can. And that was when I actually started looking beyond the content of the signal. I started thinking about what else can I tell the Coast Guard about this person? And I was so surprised to discover how much I knew. I mean, from my prior research and my association with all these experts here at Carnegie Mellon, as I said, we have a very strong group in speech and audio here. There was so much I could derive from it. I mean, I could derive the height, weight, and age of the person, where the person was from. Um, he was actually, it turns out he was not calling from the ocean surface, or he was actually on land in a room and I was able to give them details about that Mm -hmm. and that was when I realized that we could do it that profiling is a 
potential signs in itself. If it hadn't been for the Coast Guard, the signs wouldn't have been there. I mean, this is not something that academics invent and go out and tell the law enforcement agencies, here, we have something cool, yeah. use it. No, this came because the Coast Guard yeah. asked the right the questions. The research in a new area. So. And then they've been very supportive since then. Well, Rita, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It was really great talking to you about this. It was my pleasure. And thank you for your interest and all the best with the show. Thank you.